History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them. No hits, deep tracks only. Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten. We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories. I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs. This is History's B-Side. Today's B-Sider is The Fighting Girlfriend. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Phil. We I don't think we've done a morning recording before, so this is interesting. Yeah, this is a first. <laughs> Hopefully we're awake and actually like making sense as we're doing this right. one yeah our <laughs> listeners get a taste of my morning voice and we're actually you know <laughs> drinking coffee and instead of beer and wine <laughs> <laughs> or champagne like a couple weeks ago yeah so today's episode is going to revolve around a very common saying that we've had in our american lexicon i'm not sure if it's something that's said around the world but that phrase is Hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. <laughs> I'm assuming you're familiar with that phrase, right? Yes. <laughs> Do you have any, uh, maybe speaking from experience of a time that y- you might have been the victim of this? I mean, I don't necessarily want to use the word victim. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's good. So, yeah, let's not name it, any names and let's keep it happy well, and friendly and... <laughs> Certainly, but I guess what I mean by that is that I, in most of those cases, deserved the scorn that <laughs> came course, my way. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't know that I, uh, the saying I'm a victim is really the right uh, right word I want to use. But yeah, you know, I've made I've made my fair share of of women angry at me, as <laughs> as we all have. I mean, I think everybody's been through, you know, rough relationships and breakups and things like that. Um. And nobody's their best when relationships come to an end. So, um, but yes, I mean, I think in the context of that phrase, uh, there are few things that are trying to be diplomatic in my wording here. (laughs) (laughs) There are a few things that are as persistent and ruthless as a woman that you have wronged. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i guess victim was probably the wrong word there because you know if you're at the other end of this you probably deserve it and right i will say that the target of the scorned woman in this episode today definitely deserved her wrath but i don't really have a lot of that i can think of stories that would fit this personally i will say and this is i'm gonna name names because i'm married to her before Reed and I dated, <laughs> I was actually nervous because I, I think she posted something on social media or something that was like how important her family was to her. And it was like, if you date me, you should know that my family comes before anything and I will choose them over you. And if like, whatever, <laughs> I was like, yeah, good to keep in mind, you know, in case I want to date this girl that don't cross her family. And, you know, I love her family. So it worked out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I've definitely 
you know, dated several different types of people. Um, I have to say the one of the most nerve wracking is a woman that just within a couple dates, I realized how many people she knew and how many friends she had. And it was a little intimidating at first, I guess, in the same way that, I mean, you talked about Rita, like, I don't know. I, I worried that were I to do something terribly wrong, I would literally <laughs> have to move away just to <laughs> just to restart life because so many people knew her and I knew I'd be in trouble if I ever messed up. <laughs> well, I guess we can move on from that because no matter what experiences we've had and probably deserved some of that backlash <laughs> at times, nothing compares to Number one, how the woman in today's episode was wronged. And number two, her reaction to that wronging. But yeah. before we get into all of that, this episode is going to bring up a lot of themes from some of our past episodes. And I know we do this a lot where we make callbacks to some of the people or the stories that we've talked about before. But as I was reading through this, I kept thinking about a couple of these ones that we talked about recently. So this one's going to be another World War II episode. And I know we just talked about World War II, what was it now, like three weeks ago when we talked about the Champenois and their Nazi resistance. So this is again going to be fighting against the Nazis, but from a slightly different perspective. Mm -hmm. We're also going to touch a little bit on the history of the Soviet Union, which we talked about during Stanislav Petrov, the, uh, what do we call him, the man who saved humanity. Yeah. Um, but he was more of the modern Soviet Union towards the back end of the Cold War, whereas this is going to be really around the time that the Russian Empire transitioned into the Soviet Union and kind mm -hmm. of how that shaped and impacted that region of the world at the time. Yeah. But more than anything, this episode, and this is what really was stuck in my mind as I was researching this topic, this woman is basically what you get when you cross Molly Pitcher from our Women of the American Revolution episode with Helga Meyer and his ghost Camaro. <laughs> I can't wait. This sounds great. Yeah, it's actually a really, really cool story, and I'm excited to get into it and start talking about it. So as we said, this episode takes place during the early years of the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union didn't actually come to fruition until about 1917 the seeds started. But the presence of communism and Marxism in the Russian area, and I'm going to use Russia kind of just as a generic term for this episode yeah. because it wasn't Russia per se, uh, but that, that area that we know is, we're just going to call it Russia because that's how we know it. But the presence of Marxism in this area started about 20 years earlier in 1897, which was when the Marxist or the Social Democratic Party was established. And this party would later split into the Bolshevik and the Menshevik parties. At this time, the Russian Empire was actually controlling the area. And this was a dynasty that lasted basically from 1721 until 1917. Can you briefly explain the political nature of the Russian Empire, like how the government functioned, who made decisions and had power, and how power was handed down? Yeah, I mean, I didn't research that as much, because I'm sure we'll find a topic that's sort of in there for a future episode. Yeah. But the Russian Empire was led by what was called a czar, which was essentially their title for a king. Um, and mm -hmm. the word czar actually comes from Caesar, because the Russian Empire was viewed as okay. like the third Roman Empire. So they took kind of his name and 
what's the right way to say it? Russified it. That's not right, but I'm going to go with it. I love it. <laughs> they made a Russian version of Caesar and called him Tsar, and that was their title for the king. So it was basically a monarchy. Uh, one family, the Romanov family, was actually in control of the Russian Empire for about 300 years, or at least that area. Um, they were in control for a very, very long time. And it wasn't until the much later years, uh, basically from the late 1800s to early 1900s is when they started to kind of lose control of the area. There started to be a lot of dissonance and establishment of more democratic reforms that kind of led into what would eventually become the Soviet Union. Yeah. So the czar at this time was a man named Nicholas II. And after the revolution of 1905, he reluctantly established a national legislature called the Duma. And this, in theory, would give more voice to challenging political parties like the socialists, but there was a lot of disunity between the various groups that were contributing to this legislature, and their conflicts inadvertently strengthened the power of the czar. So it actually kind of helped Nicholas II stay in control a little bit longer than he maybe would have otherwise. Going into World War I, Russia fought on behalf of the Allied powers, which included Britain and France, and they fought against the central powers, which were Germany, the Ottoman Empire, and Austro-Hungary. So, Tsar Nicholas II was sort of inspired by Roman military leaders, and he was very much involved in being on the front lines of the Eastern Front, fighting against the central powers. But he forced a lot of the lower classes to fight in the war, despite the fact that they had no training, no supplies, no weapons, and very poor health conditions. So these men were soundly defeated and millions of peasant men died as a result of the poor Russian leadership. So how did this play into the overall dynamic of World War I? Did the other ally powers have to kind of make up for Russia's failing? You know, I didn't actually read too much on that. In both World War I and World War II, Russia's involvement was kind of isolated from the rest of the world, at least the rest of the European battles, because they were on what was called the... Well, I guess it depends on where you're located. It would have been the Western Front for Russia or the Eastern Front for Germany. Yeah. And it was kind of like a different battleground, different theater than where the rest of the World War I or later World War II battles were taking place. Obviously, it probably would have helped the Allied powers more if Russia had been a better military force and more successful. But really speaking to this yeah. impact on Russia, it kind of decimated their army but their army was mostly slaves and peasant men and just not <laughs> really skilled fighters but it also really hurt relations between russia and what would eventually be the future germany so gotcha. not really a great situation for the future of a strong russia and ultimately this kind of led to the undoing of czar nicholas ii hmm. there was a lot of uprising from you know, the peasants in these lower classes, which were kind of spurred on by the Bolshevik and the socialist parties, which led to the Russian Revolution in 1917. And the Tsarist government was eventually overthrown by the Bolsheviks, who installed Vladimir Lenin as their new leader. By 1918, the Bolsheviks executed Nicholas II and his family. Lenin instituted communism throughout Russia, and the Russian Civil War began. The conclusion of the Russian Civil War in 1922 led to the creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, or what we call the Soviet Union. Essentially, this was just a collection of multiple national republics with one economy and one centralized government. We typically view it as one large political nation or a big political district. 
which is because that's generally how it was run. Mm. Lenin was the Soviet Union's first leader, but following his death in 1924, Joseph Stalin came to power. And Stalin was most known for suppressing opposition, particularly through his great purge of political opponents and military leaders. He also instituted a planned economy that led to rapid industrialization and a pretty severe man-made famine in 1932. I'm interested in this man-made famine. How did, I mean, how did this planned economy cause that? So when Lenin was in charge and took control of the new Soviet Union, he had what was called a mixed economy. Essentially, they gained power by taking over a lot of the cities, and it was sort of a easy transition into communism with this mixed economy because it was basically free market capitalism, which was regulated by the government. So it was a little bit more similar to what we would recognize, except government control over how the businesses actually operated. Gotcha. Stalin took it to a much more extreme level, and he instituted a planned or what was called a command economy, which took full control of all industries, in particular agriculture. So they would set quotas, they regulated supplies, and confiscated all of the output that came from the agricultural industry. And the regulated supplies, unequal distribution of grain, combined with some really bad weather, led to a famine that killed millions in what's today modern-day Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and southwestern Russia. Wow. It is worth noting, though, that outside of agriculture, the planned economy actually did achieve pretty good success as far as building the Soviet Union's economy. Interesting. We kind of have our uh, American Western negative view of communism because that's just kind of what we're taught in our history. And I'm not right. defending communism because I think it's pretty clear that it doesn't work. But, Commie. <laughs> you know, it, it. we don't much talk about how Stalin had success in areas other than agriculture because you know it kind of goes against what we believe as americans and capitalism and all that good stuff but you know he did kind of mess things up pretty bad when it came to agriculture leading to famine distribution that's a pretty big piece (laughs) so let's talk a little bit about the soviet union's entry into world war ii Originally, Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact in August of 1939, which was called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. Neither country would ally with the other, nor would they aid the enemy of each other. But what this pact did was essentially divide fascist Germany from communist Soviet Union along the Eastern European and Baltic countries, specifically Poland. Now, the details of this pact were unknown to the rest of the world, But when both Germany and the Soviet Union began annexing all these smaller countries, you know, it kind of raised some suspicion and got the rest of the world involved in World War II pretty quickly. What the pact basically did was say, you have these countries, you have these countries, we're both going to invade them and take them over and make them a part of our separate, bigger nations. And the rest of the world didn't know that they had planned to do this together, (laughs) as long as they, you know, kept to their own side. It's like they're uh, dividing up their Halloween candy amongst one another. (laughs) Right. You have your pile, I have mine. As long as you don't steal from me, it's fine. (laughs) So Germany's invasion of Poland on September 1st, 1939 took place about a week after this agreement was signed. And this invasion is officially recognized as the start of World War II. And, you know, the Soviet Union invaded Poland pretty shortly after. So was their plan to like both invade half of it or was the Soviet invasion a response to what was, was Germany's invasion of Poland, a break from the pact and the Soviet invasion a response. So I don't believe they divided them specifically like 
you take Poland and I'll take Lithuania or whatever other country is over yeah. there. I think it was more they divided specific territories. So I think they both had stake in Poland. That was kind of gotcha. like the key country in this pact. Okay. But typically, you know, they, they both had certain areas that they wanted and they agreed to not attack each other so long as they didn't, you know, interfere with each other's plans for expansion. This peace, quote unquote, peace agreement would end eventually on June 22nd, 1941, when Germany finally invaded the Soviet Union in what was called Operation Barbarossa. Germany hoped to conquer some of these western regions of the Soviet Union, placing German people in charge of the territories and essentially utilizing the locals, which were mostly Slavic people, as slave labor to help their war effort. Can't have an episode of History's B-Side without talking about slaves. Nope. Never. (laughs) Operation Barbarossa involved 3.8 million German personnel, 3,350 tanks, 2,770 planes, and 7,200 artillery pieces, which made it the largest invasion in history. And those are all just on Germany's side, right? Those counts? Yes. Okay. They captured 5 million Soviet troops and starved to death or killed 3.3 million Soviet prisoners of war and civilians. They also, you know, murdered over a million Soviet Jews as part of the Holocaust. I'm interested, like, I'm not interested, but I'm surprised that they killed that many POWs. Because I feel like when we did the Champenois episode a couple weeks ago, we were reading more about a, a more, I don't know, a Germany that towed the line of international war laws a little bit better um, because we read about POWs, French POWs being at least kept alive. Um, Do you, I I don't know if you know this or not. I think we talked in that episode a little bit about how they maybe had more respect for the French people as far as military, militarily, you know? Right. And I don't think that they necessarily felt the same way about these people that this, not even like the Soviet Union, but the people in these, smaller countries that they were taking over that would become a part of the Soviet Union. Yeah. And let's be clear here. There were a lot of war crimes that were handed out at the conclusion of this. Like none of this was, you know, civil war. (laughs) This was all pretty bad, pretty gross display of, you know, human atrocities. And while all of this sounds really bad for the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa was ultimately a failure for the German army, and it was the beginning of the end for Hitler's Third Reich. The German army suffered significant losses in the battle, and the Soviets were able to stave off advances that the Germans expected to win easily. This dragged out battles and left the German army who were unprepared to face the harsh Russian winters. Over time, the Germans were ultimately defeated, and the Russians retook any territory that the Germans had ever occupied. In the end, it was the deadliest theater of World War II where 26 million Soviet people were killed, over 1,700 Soviet towns, and 70,000 Soviet villages were destroyed. This also stretched the German army very thin and opened them up to attacks in Western Europe. So I was kind of thinking of it like when you're playing the board game Risk and you move all your troops onto one territory to make your big move, trying to like take over a whole continent. Yeah, And then you keep rolling a one against some pesky territory and lose all of your troops. <laughs> and then <laughs> and you're suddenly screwed. you're not as strong as you were before. And now the back end of your region is just all single troops that are easy to be invaded yeah. by other people. <laughs> you go from like the strongest person on the board to the next one to be kicked out. <laughs> all because stupid Kamchatka just won't die. 
<laughs> exactly. It's always Kamchatka. <laughs> so anyway, this sort of beginning of the end for Germany's army is probably a story for a future episode. I'm sure we'll find a good topic around that. And today we're mainly going to focus on one of the Soviet Union's most badass and unlikely resistance fighters. We'll get into her story in just a few minutes here after we take a short break. We'll be right back. Matt, you like coffee, right? No, we're done with that. Year three of a pandemic? It's straight liquor now. Sun up to sundown, baby. But also, we don't use Buy Me a Coffee anymore, Phil. But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly bonus episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more. We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards. You can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us. That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. Another recurring theme that's going to be a part of this episode that, you know, has come up a lot on our past episodes is my inability to pronounce names that aren't just good old American names. (laughs) So... If you loved listening to, what was the one we did? I from yeah. ancient Egypt or Cleisthenes. If you loved listening to me struggle through those ones, just wait till we get to these Russian Soviet Union names. <laughs> <laughs> so the woman that we are talking about today is named Maria Oktyabrskaya. Did I say that right? I think so. You sounded good to me. I don't know. I'm not Russian. <laughs> Maria Oktyabrskaya. And because I'm, I don't know, I, I guess a glutton for punishment here. Her birth name was Maria Vasilyevna. She was born on August 16th, 1905 in the Crimean Peninsula. And at this time, the Crimean Peninsula was a part of the Russian Empire. She was born before the Soviet Union was actually a thing. So her family was very poor. They were of the serf class because even as late as the 1900s, we still had serf class, which was essentially slaves. (laughs) She had nine siblings, so pretty large family, and they were, of course, very poor and not great living conditions. So in 1917, as we talked about, communism began to take control and Russia began transitioning into the early Soviet Union. Maria and her family adopted to communism quickly, which seems like a pretty good deal for the lowest class, right? You go from having basically nothing because you're being held down to you're at least getting the same... I don't know, rations and supplies is pretty much everyone else. (laughs) Right. At the very least, changing to communism allowed her to get a basic education, and she would work in a cannery and then later as a telephone operator. 
1925, Maria married a Soviet officer named Ilya Oktyabrskaya. Now, the two couldn't conceive any of their own children, so instead they focused on serving their new country. Maria joined what was called the Military Wives Council, and she trained as a nurse in the army. Here she learned some skills that were very uncommon for women at the time. She learned how to use weapons, and most importantly, she learned how to drive. Not a Hmm. lot of women were driving in the early Soviet Union. Yeah. Military service was an important responsibility for Maria and her husband. In a letter to her sister, she wrote, quote, Marry a serviceman, and you serve in the army. An officer's wife is not only a proud woman, but also a responsible title. So you can kind of see how this pride in being in the military and serving the Soviet Union was a big part of their lives for both yeah. of them, but especially for her, which... You know, I mean, I guess you see that more with the military husband, the guy who joins the army or whatever, because that's what you do. But to have that point of pride from his wife was also a big deal. Right. As we talked about in the first half of this episode, the Soviet entrance into World War II came from originally their peace agreement with the Germans. But Stalin did expect Hitler to go back on that pact, which, as we now know, they would do. So Ilya was deployed to the Eastern Front to help defend against the German attack. Meanwhile, Maria was evacuated to Tomsk, Siberia, where it was believed to be safer than where they were living, susceptible to German attacks. The Soviets had superior weapons to the Germans, specifically their tanks, but they lacked sufficient ammunitions, radios, and supply trucks, and really they just didn't have enough. So the Soviets were overmatched, and Ilya was killed near Kiev in August 1941. Now, this was the early Soviet Union, and she was in Siberia, so communications weren't great. (laughs) Maria didn't actually learn of her husband's death until two years later in 1943. As you can expect, she didn't take the news very well, and she (laughs) vowed revenge on the Germans by volunteering for the army. Ah, so this is the scorn. This is the scorn. (laughs) It's not so much an ex-girlfriend, it is a vengeful wife. Yeah. She was turned down in her request to join the army because she had a prior tuberculosis diagnosis and also her age. She was at this time 38 years old. So instead, she sold all of her possessions and deposited all the money into the National Bank. She explained this decision in a letter that she wrote to Joseph Stalin himself, where she said, (laughs) right? Isn't that ridiculous? (laughs) Right to Papa Joe. Yeah. She wrote, quote, My husband was killed in action defending the motherland. I want revenge on the fascist dogs for his death and for the death of Soviet people tortured by the fascist barbarians. For this purpose, I've deposited all of my personal savings, 50,000 rubles, to the National Bank in order to build a tank. I kindly ask that you name the tank Boyavaya Podruga and send me to the front lines as the driver of said tank. And just for... You know, clarification here. Boyavaya Pedruga translates to fighting girlfriend. <laughs> this is amazing. So I see the connection with uh, Helga Meyer now. Yeah. Not many people would just go off uh, buying a tank. So <laughs> Well, Helga Meyer kind of built his own tank. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so you mentioned she offered 50,000 rubles of her personal savings. Is there, I mean, how do we know how much that was at the time in a, in a number that we could understand as Americans? Uh, rubles are a weird currency. They're really hard to compare to American dollars and then 
obviously convert it to today because they weren't like real. <laughs> yeah. Rubles was a internal currency used by the Soviet Union. It was only legally allowed to be used within the Soviet Union. So this allowed them to control their economy a little bit better by having a regulated currency. Sure. One estimate that I read placed the value of a ruble at basically five rubles to one US dollar. So I, I don't know if that's totally accurate, but it's the best thing I can go off of for this. So 50,000 rubles, or let's just call it $10,000 in 1943, would be worth almost $158,000 today. So quite a bit of money that she yeah. donated to this effort. It still doesn't seem like enough to buy a tank, but yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of money for a personal <laughs> handover. Well, Stalin and his state defense committee probably didn't love the idea of a 38-year-old woman driving a tank, you know, <laughs> fighting in the army, but they saw it as both a great PR opportunity and also just a person who is willing to give her life for the Soviet Union. So they said yes. <laughs> Maria requested that her money be used to purchase a T-34 tank. And I'm going to be honest here, I don't know a whole lot about tanks, but I did read that German General Paul Ludwig Ewald von Kleist referred to the T-34 as, quote, the finest tank in the world and said that it had a vast superiority over German tanks. Hmm. The T-34 was a medium tank and was a staple of the Soviet army. And although its technology would be outdated even by the end of World War II, it's described as being the most influential tank design of the war. Do you know what was, I know you said you, you're not a tank expert, but uh, <laughs> do you know what was unique about the T-34 that made it so superior and so influential? Well, I mean, it was a medium tank. So typically you'd have these bigger tanks that had very strong defenses and very strong weapons on them, but they couldn't be used very much in... I guess, active combat because they weren't, they would get stuck basically in the middle of the battlefield. Uh, and then you okay. had much smaller tanks that were a lot better for maneuverability and could actually go throughout the battles, but they didn't have as very good defenses and not as strong of weapons. So the T-34 was a little bit easier to navigate around throughout right. combat and had much stronger defenses and a better gun on it. So, I mean, it, it was just kind of a new design and probably a better design for tanks than what we had previously. And that's about the okay. extent that I know about it. I, I mean, I <laughs> probably could have read a lot more about tanks, but it's not really, I guess, a huge deal <laughs> as far I as the story goes. I expected you to be certified. No, just ha I expected you to be a certified tank expert for this, this episode. I'm so. sure you'll have lots of tank questions for me in the quiz section of this episode. <laughs> I actually have one. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> So this specific tank would normally cost between 130,000 and 270,000 rubles. So quite a bit more than okay. what Maria was actually contributing to purchase it. I'm thinking Stalin probably gave her a discount considering she was also willing to sacrifice her life for the war effort. And probably they were going to buy this tank anyway. So any money that, you know, some poor person's willing to contribute to it is just money saved, I guess. Saved money, yeah. <laughs> and just to go back to our comparison for the current modern day currency valuation you can actually purchase a decommissioned t-34 tank for about two hundred and thirty thousand dollars today which is only about seventy thousand dollars more than what we estimated maria would have paid for hers <laughs> so maybe yeah. you're getting a good deal on that you know if you want to own a tank and 
driving around <laughs> Portland. I'm actually kind of surprised you can buy a tank for that little. I would have expected a tank to have costed like, I don't know, 800000 or more dollars. I wonder if you can get like audio upgrades or a sunroof. <laughs> well, it's a decommissioned tank, first of all. So you're not going to be like driving, driving into combat with it. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that you could add in your whatever sound system that you want in it. <laughs> But I think this thing has like a max speed of like 30 miles an hour. So you're not getting very far, very fast o- in it. Only useful for city driving. <laughs> <laughs> Except those lanes are so darn narrow. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> You'd literally be running over the cars parallel parked on either side of the road. <laughs> <laughs> so Maria actually received a five-month tank training program. This wasn't very common for other Soviet soldiers. Most male recruits were given a very quick training and then put immediately to the front lines. Mm. Obviously, the war required a steady supply of able-bodied soldiers, and perhaps the fact that she was a woman made them decide to give her the extra training, which is kind of sexist, but probably to her benefit that she was a little better trained than just said, here you go, get out there. (laughs) At the completion of her program, she was assigned to the 26th Guards Tank Brigade, which is a part of the 2nd Guards Tank Corps as a driver and a mechanic. Her fellow tankers viewed her as a publicity stunt and a joke. I feel like this is kind of like a Russian female Captain America situation. I don't know if you saw the movie or not, but like... No. He's he's kind of, I mean, in the first Captain America movie at least, he's viewed by the fellow men as like the same way, a joke. Especially because he mm-hmm. starts as like a scrawny, like skinny little dude. But even after he does the whole Captain America transformation, the other soldiers kind of look down on him for being exactly this, a publicity stunt and not <laughs> a real soldier. So, Well, any doubt in Maria's abilities or bravery would disappear on October 21st, 1943, which is 49 years before our very own Matthew Melito was born. To if I'm doing day. that math right. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, sounds about right. The Germans had taken over Smolensk, which was a city 220 miles southwest of Moscow, in 1941. Now, by 1943, the Soviets had actually mostly recovered the city, but there was still a pretty large German presence. Mm. So Maria charged with the fighting girlfriend, taking out several anti-tank guns and machine gun nests before her tank was eventually hit. She defied orders by climbing out of the tank while under heavy fire, repaired her tank, and then jumped back in to continue fighting. Jesus. Um, so what What were the orders she was to follow? Just sit tight until she was rescued or blown up? or? That's kind of what I'm thinking. You know, you obviously, it's not smart to just climb out into active fire right. to repair your tank. But, I mean, you're kind of just a sitting duck at that point. You're, if you're not able to do anything with your tank, you're basically just waiting to die anyway, unless they somehow leave you go. Right. Obviously, she got back in after repairing the tank and continued fighting, and this event actually cleared the Germans from Smolensk, which cut off their route to Moscow. It also gained her respect with her fellow tankers, who gave her the nickname Mother, which is weird. (laughs) But more importantly, it earned her a promotion to the rank of sergeant. And remember that saying from the beginning, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned? Yeah. Well... Maria explained her bravery in a letter to her sister where she said, I have had my baptism by fire. Sometimes I'm so angry I can't even breathe. Jeez. 
<laughs> She's ready to go. She was hungry for Nazi blood. She was. A few weeks later, on November 17th, in the town of Novoye Selo in Vitebsk, a similar scene played out. A German artillery shell blew out her tank tracks, and she again climbed out of her tank to repair it while under fire. Then she jumped back into the tank and rejoined her unit. I'm honestly surprised at the resilience of the tank itself, that like it could be hit with artillery fire and then still be repaired by, I mean, even a, a skilled mechanic like Maria while on the battlefield you know yeah i mean it's amazing i'm I'm not real sure on like what type of weapons they were using that was actually hitting the tank it could have just mm-hmm. been you know shrapnel that didn't hit it directly or something like that sure. but it is impressive that this tank survived through so much and that she was able to actually just get out <laughs> and repair it on the battlefield yeah On January 17th, 1944, Maria once again found herself in battle, this time near the town of Shvedi, which was also in Vitebsk. And this was a part of the... (laughs) Oh, sorry. The town name of Shvedi is is too good not to laugh at. In fairness, I'm probably mispronouncing it. (laughs) Shvedi. (laughs) This battle was a part of... (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm, I'm good. This battle was a part of the Leningrad-Novgorod offensive. Again, she attacked German trenches and machine gun nests before the fighting girlfriend was, again, hit in its tracks by an anti-tank shell. As usual, she climbed out and repaired the track, but unfortunately this time shell fragments from an anti-tank weapon that impacted several meters away from her struck her in the head. She was knocked unconscious and transported to a Soviet field hospital in Fastiv near Kiev, and eventually to a military hospital in Smolensk. She was in a coma for two months until she eventually died on March 15, 1944. Maria was buried with military honors at the Heroes Remembrance Garden in Smolensk. In that August, she was posthumously made a Hero of the Soviet Union, which is the highest military distinction in the Soviet Union. It's sort of equivalent to our Congressional Medal of Honor in the United mm. States. Okay. As for the fighting girlfriend, it continued to be used by the members of her unit. The tank actually made it as far as the northwestern border of Russia as they advanced along the western front. It was actually destroyed three times, but it was always replaced with a new tank, and the unit continued to rename it Fighting Girlfriend in honor of Maria Oxtrabiskaya. So her unit clearly was fond of her after. Yeah, she was her, mother. Her feet. <laughs> she was mother. <laughs> I mean, it, it's a weird nickname, but it is a weird nickname. She was probably older not... than the rest of the soldiers, and they were yeah, yeah, they were proud of her bravery, probably inspired by her actions. Very Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually mentioned in one of the articles I read when they was it? said the nickname. Yeah, they were like kind of Freudian by her unit to call her mother, but yeah, I guess I mean it. It makes sense. These are probably young guys who are scared themselves, even though they're soldiers but yeah you have a not old but like slightly older than them woman who's kind of leading the charge for them she's mother Just a pi- i'm picturing this tank unit like yelling at each other in russian and her being like let's go and then being like okay mom <laughs> god you're always on me mom <laughs> this episode took a weird turn towards the end yeah <laughs> 
So in a couple previous episodes, we've talked at the end about whether or not we think the person or the subject of the day is a good person. Do you think that Maria is a good person? I don't really think we have any like arguments against her being a good person, but yeah, I mean, okay. In our American society, we typically don't view a lot of Soviet people as heroes, right? (laughs) Right. But there's not really anything that she did wrong, at least to our knowledge, at least from what we know about her. Yeah. I mean, she was just fighting for her country. She killed a bunch of Nazis, which, hey, that's all right in our book, right? (laughs) I think so. (laughs) That aligns with the morals of of History's B-Side podcast. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, she, she was just inspired to avenge her husband, much in the way that, you know, some of the women that we discussed to be potentially Molly Pitcher were. Yeah. Once that's their true. husbands were killed in battle, they kind of took his place. And that's, I think, exactly what Maria Oxtrobiskaya did is her husband died and she wanted to fight on his behalf. And as far as we know, she was successful. I mean, she was a hero, at least to her country. Yeah. She obviously wasn't doing it for very long, but she died in combat. There's not much you can do about that. She died on behalf of her country. Right. She's like a Russian Liam Neeson in Taken. <laughs> like, I will come for you. That's how she was. She was angry. Yeah. I mean, I would be too. I I can totally sympathize with the anger. She was a lot more diligent in her expression of her anger than I think a lot of people would be. <laughs> she was committed. Yeah. So are you ready for your quiz? I, I have no idea. <laughs> Tanks and history of Russia. Let's do it. <laughs> All right. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back. As you know, we like to end each episode with a short quiz for our host to see what he's learned uh, in his research of the topic and also to give our listeners a fun chance to test their own knowledge. So today's uh, today's quiz is about tanks and female <laughs> soldiers in the Soviet Union. How do you feel, Phil? I feel not like you're going to do all right. Why not? Because <laughs> I told you everything I know about tanks in the last section. All right. Well, then I guess it's fitting. I'll start with the tank question and get it out of the way for you. It's, I mean, Great. I don't feel like it's, it's too, I feel like it's a bit intuitive. It's also kind of a, a question you could just guess and probably get it right. But the T-34, as we've talked about, was one of the most influential and superior tanks of World War II. And you also mentioned that it took Maria and a unit of people to operate it. How many soldiers specifically did the T-34 require to operate? This is like the Molly Pitcher episode when you asked me how many people it takes to load a cannon. (laughs) That's why I did it. (laughs) Ah, shoot. Let's go five. Five is correct. There were actually two. Wow. There were two numbers that I would have accepted. The first version of the T-34 required four people to operate it uh, and then later on a an updated version was released that was the t34 85 and that one required five people and had a more powerful gun all right well i 
didn't see anything that she had the second version, but I did read that the T-34 came out in 1940, so by 1943 there were, like, newer versions of it. Right. But regardless, five was a random shot in the dark, and I did not know the answer to that question, so I'm happy I got it right. (laughs) You nailed it. Good job. All right, now for your second question. So there's a bust of Maria somewhere in Russia as a monument to her. Uh, And it's in a town that you named during this episode. Now, there were several towns that you named in this episode. (laughs) But my question is, which of these Russian towns is her bust and monument located? I would have to think that it's Smolensk, because that's where she died and was buried, I believe. Mm Mm-hmm. So the, I asked this question because I knew you would guess Smolensk, <laughs> and it's not Smolensk. So it's actually Tomsk in Siberia, where she oh. was located when she found out her husband had been killed. Interesting. That's weird. Yeah, I thought it was kind of an odd choice. I actually didn't even realize that I, I didn't realize you had asked or not asked, but mentioned the town until we started recording. And I was like, oh, that's where she was in Siberia. That's why it's there. <laughs> but at first I was just like, why is it in this random town in the middle of nowhere? I wonder if they claim her like they say she's from there, even though she really wasn't there for very long. Yeah, I don't know. Two questions down. You're one. You're one and one. <laughs> you can still come up, come out on top. The answer to this next question I saw mentioned a couple times in a few different articles. So I feel like if you read carefully and remember things you didn't necessarily include, (laughs) you might get it right. So throughout World War II, the Soviet or Red Army varied in numbers, but it started with about 5 million soldiers and by the end of the war had risen to about 11 million. Of the entire Red Army, how many... Or what percent, you can give me either a number or a percent of their army was made up of women. I don't know. I would guess that it's pretty low. I guess I'll say 5%. That's exactly it. How did, What? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was. It was 5%. of the total military personnel, which totals about 800,000 women. I mean, that's a lot higher than... (laughs) That's a lot higher than I would have guessed. Yeah, it's it's definitely a lot. I feel like... I don't know. We don't have, like, a great view, as you said, of the Soviet Union from an American standpoint or background, but I almost feel like this is a lot more women than any of the other allied countries would have allowed in their in their armies. And a lot of these women were soldiers. It's not like they were just army nurses. Yeah. Many of them were anti-aircraft personnel um, or artillery personnel. They were usually deployed to those more fortified, safer positions. But a lot of them were also just, you know, put right on the front lines with rifles, just like the men. I'm curious if that has more to do with the communist attitude, just that, like, yeah. All people play their role regardless of who you are. And I mean, that's I have no reason to think that one way or another. It's just kind of right. Guessing, well, but another another part of it not to downplay the focus on women um but a, a portion of the attitude Stalin showed towards recruitment was really just 
give me more warm bodies to put on the front line. <laughs> and that's yeah. why that's that's actually one of the reasons why the tank training was so shoddy. They yeah. didn't even care if you could operate the tank, really. You were just there to operate it until you died, and then they would replace you with somebody else. And so I, on one hand, like, I don't, I don't want to sit here and, like, respect the Soviet Union for allowing women into the army, because it seems like, like a progressive move, but their, their attitude was also pretty horrific as far as their soldiers went. I mean, Stalin, famous for, you know having a very warm attitude towards yeah. the life of his people and making sure that they, you know, have great living conditions and live a long time. And yeah, he's know. a very empathetic, generous leader. <laughs> yes. He loves his people. Famously. The, uh, the amount of times I read that phrase, more warm bodies for the front lines was <laughs> a little sickening. Yeah. It's, it's pretty sad, but Hey, it looks like, Five might be your lucky number after today. Apparently, yeah. guesses on five. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of History's B-Side. We hope you enjoyed learning about, let me say it one more time, Maria Oktrovskaya. Did I say that right? I don't think so. I feel like you're killing it. I don't know. I didn't <laughs> say her last name at all this episode because I didn't even want to try. We hope you'll join us next week for another episode of some lesser known people from history. If you have any feedback, please feel free to email us at historiesbside at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at historiesbside. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Histories B-Side is an independent, listener-supported podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at historiesbside. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcasts at historiesbside.com. You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras, and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Molino and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening to History's B-Side.